geochemist Lex Van Geen is a research professor at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory and is a member of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. His research focuses on ways to reduce the impact of the environment on human health. For two decades, he coordinated Earth science on the origin and the health effects of elevated levels of arsenic in groundwater. His other projects focus on fluoride in groundwater in India, bauxite dust in Guinea, or soil contaminated with lead from mime tailings in Peru, and the fallout of lead over Paris following the fire in Notre Dame. Dr. Van Geen is a firm believer in the more widespread use of field kits by non-specialists to reduce exposure to environmental toxicants. Lex Van Geen, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Presser. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, glad to be here. So we want to know a little bit about your path and why you chose to be a geochemist. Yeah. So I was actually trained as a chemist and a chemical oceanographer. This is what I did for about a couple of decades. Towards the end, I had switched to climate change reconstructions using marine sediment cores and looking at properties of microorganisms, among other things. And then I met a number of colleagues from Columbia's University Newman School of Public Health, and they told me that there was an opportunity to study the issue of high arsenic levels in well water across Bangladesh. They would cover, of course, the health impacts, and I would try to understand why the arsenic is in those wells in the first place and what we could do in terms of lowering people's exposure. And so this was very exciting. It happened about 20 years ago, a little more than that. So essentially that was a change in the direction of my interest. So the reason people drink well water in the first place is because surface water, which is more easily accessible, is often contaminated with microbial pathogens. And this was true, especially in a high population density area like Bangladesh. You can boil the water, of course, but boiling takes you know, fuel and effort. And to avoid these microbial pathogens, it turns out pumping the water through the sand underneath is very effective. There are the levels of microbial pathogens in well water are, are orders of magnitude lower. And so this is why the, you know, essentially the number of wells in Bangladesh grew exponentially to maybe 10 million today in the past three decades. But what people didn't know as these wells were being installed, they didn't know until the late nineties is that some of these wells had high levels of arsenic. Not levels of arsenic that kill you on the spot, but the chronic exposure, so you don't notice it, can have very serious health impacts. Yeah. And what is the safe level of exposure? I mean, how long might one be exposed until one was experiencing consequences? Right. So, so there is, you know, the World Health Organization has established a guideline. Uh, the US EPA has a guideline, as a, a standard as well. And these essentially have been going down over time. Uh, reflecting the fact that people realize that in the case of arsenic, not being exposed to any arsenic is best. So there's no real threshold where certainly the health effects appear or below which they disappear. It's a, uh, you know, to first order, a linear process. And right now it's established at 10 micrograms per liter arsenic as a WHO guideline. And just describe a little bit of the process of the testing, the field tests, the citizen scientists, how you all work together. In the early days of the project, a lot of attention was paid to treating the water. Uh, that's what we do in many industrialized countries. The problem is that this is much more difficult when a village has hundreds of wells in it and everyone needs, every one of these wells needs its own treatment system. 
any treatment system has a limited capacity. When you reach that capacity, uh, will depend on what else is in the water, typically not how much arsenic is in the water. And I think over the past two decades, essentially the lesson learned is that treatment is difficult. It could be done maybe at the community level or it can be done at the town level, but at the individual household level, it's going to be very difficult. And so that's why as soon as we produced our first detailed map of the distribution of arsenic in wells for a 25 square kilometer area of Bangladesh, where we started our study, and we tested about 6,000 wells at the time, we realized that what we should instead try to focus on is taking advantage of the fact that the arsenic is distributed very heterogeneously across the area. So you could have one person with a bad well living within 50 meters of a person who has a safe well. And so with uh, my colleagues, not only in public health, but economists as well, what we've been focusing on is trying to understand to what extent people would be willing to share the safe wells. So rather than treatment, we've switched to sharing existing safe wells. And that then brings fairly naturally to the idea of using field kits to test these wells, because it's not realistic to expect a wells to be 10 million wells to be tested in the lab and the result then return to the household. That would be an enormously complicated process. In addition, once you test a well, typically has a lifetime of about 10 years, you're not done. You know, 10 years later, you have to test another 10 But water is so, you know, it's so simple, it's so basic, but it's, it's so complicated, as you say. And I think if we could broaden the question into, you know, in other countries, we're all thinking about the future of water scarcity. We have our own contaminants, and depending on what country we're in. Right now, we're in Paris at the Columbia Global Centers. You're normally working in America. What are your thoughts on water management there or throughout Europe? I don't have too much to say about water quantity or scarcity. I uh, certainly in Bangladesh, I can tell you that there's a lot of water used for irrigation, for instance, and the water levels in the aquifer go down, but then they go up during the monsoon. So that hasn't been a real issue. I think cities like Phoenix and Arizona, they have a quantity issue, but I don't know so much about it. What has been in the news very much in the U.S., especially in recent years, is the issue of, of lead, right? Flint, Michigan, but before that, Washington, D.C., schools in New York City, and Newark, New Jersey as well. So these are areas with a municipal water supply system. And the complication there, and we've studied some of that, is that the water that is provided by the municipal system may be fine. It goes through large main pipes, cast iron or plastic, and then often it is sent to individual houses, and those can be LED's so-called service line. And that's been a problem. In Newark, New Jersey, uh, a few years ago, this was compounded with the fact that the water supply system wasn't controlling the pH, the acidity of the water properly. And so it was releasing a lot of lead that had accumulated inside these lines over time. So uh, a significant number of people were drinking water that uh, contained a lot more than the 15 ppb concentrations of lead that are set as a stand. Yes, and in addition to that, there's all these other man-made chemicals that can still there are new iterations with new names. But on the subject of lead, you did a study here right in the aftermath of the fire at Notre Dame. That's right. So this was maybe nine months after the fire. And I had been struck by, uh, of course, you know, visually the fire, the smoke, the yellow smoke, which is a telltale indicator. The fact that 400 tons of lead, uh, so constituted the roof, the covering of the roof of the cathedral 
and a lot of that had volatilized. But no one really knew how much of that. So that got me thinking, and I happened to be in Paris at the time. So I thought, if it's so much lead, could it be that it affected the population living, you know, within, say, a kilometer of the cathedral, children in particular? You told me that you lived within that distance. And what struck me at the time, and so this must have been December 2019, is I thought there wasn't really a lot of information, clear information about what had happened, what had been measured. I thought some more openness, transparency was needed. And so I drew two circles around the cathedral, one with a 400 meter radius and another one with a 1000 meter radius. And I divided up so that I would collect maybe 20 or 40 samples along each of these circles. I don't quite remember. I think it was 40 plus 40, so 80. And, and that I would try to find soil that could be a good reservoir sort of collector or whatever was falling out from the sky. I wasn't, you know, assuming that there was an input. I've made these circles, really, these concentric circles. I centered them all the cathedral, and I thought, well, we do know in which direction the wind was blowing. So if we see a pattern of origin in that direction, that would be a good indication. If we don't, then we could say, well, there hasn't been a measurable impact. So all I did in the following weeks was to walk around. I had made a map in my maps, and I said, okay, I'm going to try to find soil. Wasn't always easy to find soil. Often I would go around trees and try to ignore the dog droppings around them and things like that. So I scooped a little bit of soil and then I tested them with soil at first at home with a kit that one of my students developed uh, for lead. So that's a visual indicator. And then later I analyzed these same samples, which had been dried and sieved to some fairly homogeneous grain size. I analyzed them by X-ray fluorescence at the lab. And so what we found from this uh, testing is that there indeed was a pattern. There was more, uh, there were higher levels of lead towards the West. And um, there were some occasional, you know, hotspots towards the East as well, but clearly the, the weight was towards the West. And then with a, um, a colleague, a statistician, we tried to integrate and calculate how much excess lead there was in that direction. And so we came up with a figure to relate that this uh, rule was made of. And by then also another report had come out pointing out that beyond one kilometer, about 150 kilograms, so 0.15 tons of lead had been estimated to be deposited. And so you had the 0.15 and then the 400 source total potential. And we decided that about a ton of lead was between the cathedral and one kilometer in that wedge towards the west. And that seems to make sense. I think it's fairly robust. You know, it could be half a ton. It could be 1.5. In a way, it doesn't matter. But the idea that if you have a certain fraction going within a kilometer and then an order of magnitude, a factor of 10 less beyond that, that makes complete sense in terms of transport and dropping out. So, so we felt we had a new piece of information. Now, as I wrote up the story for this, the paper, I also looked a bit more closely at the timing, what information was released by the French government in particular. And what struck me as I was putting this together, this history, are two things. One is that the alarm concerning the potential lead exposure from the cathedral, it wasn't the government, it was an NGO called Robert des Bois that sounded that alarm and said, you've got to do something, you've got to look into this. And I think they were primarily focused initially on the workers and the firefighters that were really on the site. But, but later on, they also made some more general statements. And it's only more than a week later that the French government 
came up with some statements, which I think were overly reassuring, but that's often a natural reaction of government. I don't know to what extent one can blame them for that, but I wonder what would have happened if this NGO had not said something within about a week of the fire. I really wonder. The thing that maybe I find less understandable is why after months, the government then said, okay, parents who are worried about their children's exposure can go to one of the hospitals, I think it was on the Ile de la Cité, and have that child tested for lead in blood. And eventually, I think about 1,000 or 1,200 did, but that was over six months. So there was a very long time. And what I think there really should have been done is essentially try to get every child within a certain radius in and towards the West of going to school be tested. I think that would have been the right thing to do. Instead, this was a volunteer program. Of course, you can't force parents to have their children, but it could have been much more proactive. You know, the testers could have come to the school and say, ah, we're going to take a break. Please come here. Let me quickly test your blood. Then you would have about a fifth of the total number of children that could have been tested. One thing that was interesting, so I, I was lucky because the story was picked up by Le Monde. It got some publicity and people started responding. And then I looked at the responses uh, to the article, which is maybe something one shouldn't do. <laughs> I learned afterwards. So some of them said, ah, this is good that this was done. But many of them were actually quite critical. You know, I remember one distinctly saying, why isn't this American? Because I was described as an American there. Uh, uh, why isn't this American testing uh, for lead in, on the lawn around the White House, <laughs> for instance? Or who funded this study? Who gave authorization for this study? And that made me realize how I think this is something about France that is quite specific, which is that people uh, don't really realize that it's really up to citizens to try to make measurements. Let's put it this way. You'd like governments to make the measurements that are needed, but you know, governments can be overwhelmed or there may be pressure not to do so. Citizens can do a lot. There, you know, what I did was really simple and anybody could have done that. And it surprised me that some people felt that if anything, this was almost illegal or inappropriate. And maybe that's what I want to do more uh, of in the future is, is make people realize that they can use field kits. They can make measurements in the environment of properties that are relevant to health and shouldn't feel constrained to do that. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful that there is this availability and I would love to have a link to different field kits that may be available. Yeah, when we wait, I think that obviously in terms of anything to do with the environment, with public health, we need government, but sometimes we have to give the impetus because I think as you've identified, there's a fear around testing by government agencies because they may not feel that they will be able to do anything about it beyond the testing. I so it's like, why let people know? Yeah, no, I think, you know, it's a somewhat paternalistic approach, of course. Uh, uh, and, and I understand it. In fact, maybe I've also become more aware now that, in fact, I've been, some of my work has been criticized by well-intentioned pediatricians. Uh, you test someone's bone for lead in paint, for instance. So we, we started to do that. But then you don't have an immediate solution. So all you're doing uh, by testing, offering to test, is, is cause stress. And that made me think, of course, and I can see the point and, and I shouldn't just stop there at the same time, you know, my research grants won't cover the actual remediation, but I do think information is very valuable and that is relatively easy to obtain. So for instance, if in a household, one room turns out to have you know, old lead paint that's peeling, what you can at least tell that household is don't let your child play in that room, play in another room. I think there is 
a lack of realization of how valuable environmental information obtained at the very local scale can be. At the same time, I agree a project shouldn't stop there. And, and so, for instance, I'm now working on a proposal to the National Science Foundation. Uh, uh, it's called Civic. The idea is essentially to engage communities in U.S. cities in helping them resist either, you know, adapt to climate change or obtain access to a service that's not missing. And so we are going to make the case in this proposal, which is due May 5th, we're going to say the city of Newark, that certain area of the city of Newark has a very high proportion of children with elevated levels of lead in the blood. There could be various reasons for that. It could be the paint. It could be the soil in areas where they play because if they ingest the soil, they could be exposed. Or it could be the water. I mean, water has been in the news, but it's probably less likely to be the cause than the paint and maybe the paint contaminating the soil. So what we are essentially in that proposal, what we are want to do is offer as a service testing. So we'll do testing using our kits, but just as importantly, we won't be in a position to certify if a home is safe. So we will say, you can use these kits as screening tools, and then we will help you access the services that are available for free from the city of Newark. You can call in an evaluator. You can also apply for certain types of funding to do something about it afterwards. So that's going to be the emphasis of our proposal is making households aware, but then once their environment has been tested and there is an issue, we don't want to be them high and draw. We want to sort of help them with that next step. And we hope that as a result of this, if we get funded for the second stage of this proposal, then this area has a population of about 35,000. Every year, 500 children are born in this area. What we aim to do is essentially find a way to contact every uh, woman who's expecting a child during this year, engage her and you know, participate in, in this testing program. We think that it might be more convincing that something can be done about it. So we want to encourage these families to test the environment before the child is born. And right now, I know that in this portion of Newark, it's called Valesburg, only 40% of the children are tested in the pediatrician's office or in the, at the hospital. And the law actually mandates that they should be tested, I think, twice in the first two years of their life. So there's first, that's already an indication that something isn't quite right. So we hope the children tested in Valesburg, New Jersey increases. That's number one. And then we hope, because we are in touch with the Department of Health of the city of Newark, we hope to be able to obtain not individual blood data, but sort of the aggregated. And what we're hoping is that at the end of this year, and maybe the next year, the blood lead levels in the children of this part of Newark, which is way above the average for Newark. And just to give you an idea, I think it's as recently as 2015, that average was 8% of children were exceeding the threshold from the CDC. The, the city of Newark is more like 5%. The state of New Jersey is more like 3%. So we'd like to bring that 8% down to below the average in Newark. And if the Department of Health is cooperative, we'll be able to compare, you know, our intervention area, those 500 kids, to say 500 comparable kids from other parts of town. And we'll see if it has an impact. So that, I think, illustrates the kinds of approaches and how we are trying to go beyond just testing. We want to understand what are the barriers to testing, what are the barriers people face once they get some bad news, and we want to try to help them overcome that barrier. It's not geochemistry, it's some, and to some extent, it is public health. It's also behavioral science. It's over clearly a combination of that. 
My name is Lynn Flores, and I am an anthropology major at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. If there is one thing that I have learned in my studies, it's that the environment we are surrounded in and its consequential circumstances greatly affect the quality of our lives. Lex Van Geen not only acknowledges this concept, but is passionate about empowering others to interact with their world in ways that can result in the improvement of their circumstances, such as field kits and testing. Through his experiences and accumulated knowledge, he empowers his fellow humans sharing the same planet, that with their own hands, they have the ability to change their world for the better. The methods Lex Van Geen describes are logical, tangible, and accessible, such as testing at schools or contacting those who are pregnant. In addition, he acknowledges the fears, misconceptions, and misinformation the population has regarding testing in kits. Lex Van Geen provides explanations of why these fears manifest and how to mitigate them. He offers solutions such as utilizing modern technology to make information readily available and understandable to the general public. With his knowledge, Lex Van Geen brings confidence to our planet and those who live here for a safer and brighter future. I hope you've learned something new that you can apply to your everyday life. Let's get back to the interview. In terms of consumer protections, you're speaking of identifying the paints that have these high lead levels. They are not on the market anymore, just to make sure, because sometimes some things remain on the market, you know. The, no, that's right. So the selling and I think the production of lead-based paint was banned in 1978. But, you know, you don't paint your house every year, right? So pre-1978 housing often still has lead paint. And, and especially if that starts to peel, I'm told, I've never tried it, but the paint has a sweet taste, the lead-based paint as and well. Kids love to lick walls. And exactly. So that's a big problem. I found out more recently that other parts of the world, for instance, in West Africa, countries like Ivory Coast, uh, lead-based paint was being sold freely a few years ago. It's been legislated now that it cannot happen. That doesn't mean it doesn't. And in fact, we have a project that we submitted to a French research organization with the French ERD with some colleagues, economists and public health scientists, where we'd like to do a similar intervention in Ivory Coast. Involve women before a child is born, make them aware, help them with the testing and try to lower the blood lead levels in these children. And in terms of the bioaccumulation, children are at risk. So at some point, if we have been exposed, it's leaving our body or is it remaining forever? So, so a child is particularly susceptible to exposure for two reasons. One, just because of behavior. So a child plays in the, you know, on the ground, puts things in the mouth. And so if you have lead chips around, they're more likely to affect the child. Also, the child has a relatively small body mass. So the relative effect is large. The other thing is that children who are exposed to these higher levels of lead have been shown to have reduced intellectual function. And it has been shown by others, I think they must have been economists, also their lifelong earnings are affected, so they are lower. Another study by economists looking at data from Rhode Island showed that young boys, often African-American boys, were more likely to have behavioral issues at school and even end up as juvenile delinquents if they had been exposed to, to lead as a child. So it has enormous consequences. That effect, to some extent, can be turned around, I think, with extra attention to education. But I don't know if that's reversible fully. A lot of this lead ends up in the boards. And so that is a sort of a longer-term reservoir. Otherwise, I think within a couple of months, what is not picked up by the boards will be lost in various ways. I should also say that I understand, even though it's my, not my specialty, that later in life, lead exposure can have an effect on cardiovascular disease. 
uh, it's not only children that are affected. I admire your application and your energy for research. I just know that if I was working so deeply in the field, it seems like you're so deeply aware that just living is a risk. Just you, you think you're safe inside, it's on the walls. You think you have a drink of water, you're poisoning yourself. How do you maintain that optimism and energy and not just to be aware of every possible thing that can... Right. Well, a lot of these exposures are avoidable. I think that's what gives me optimism is that if I knew that I can avoid something, then I would try to. Most people would try to. I also understand at one point we did some work in Peru, for instance, in some mining towns. There, I think, not so much about because of our work, but a previous group's work, there was actually hostility. People saying, my child is fine, not to us, but my child is fine. You're telling us that my child is exposed to lead. We know the lead comes from this smelter, but the smelter gives me my job. If the smelter is closed, I lose my job, I lose my income, we'll be worse off. So why not everyone is convinced by testing? I can understand, especially if people have other constraints and have difficulties making ends meet. More often than not, I think, there are ways to reduce your exposure and testing will help. And it's not as hard as maybe people think. It's not as hopeless. So I think that's what keeps me going. But what are some uh, places where, wherever you are in the world, but just name some resources where people could find more information about the contaminants in their area and perhaps uh, field test kits, et cetera. Well, you know, I happen to study soil and water. For, for testing arsenic and well water, that's pretty inexpensive. It's about 30 cents per test strip, something like that. So we use that a lot. I mentioned the paint kits on Amazon. You can get this kit for about $25 for three swabs, um, for, for eight swabs. So you could do eight you know, different tests in your house. The soil, so we developed the kits. We tried several times already, two times, to get some funding from NIH to produce this kit commercially, but we've been turned down. Essentially because I think narrow-minded public health scientists felt that a kit that tells you where the soil is uh, 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 low, medium, or highly contaminated was not sufficient, that that was uh, not useful information. Even though in the proposal, we made it very clear every time that in the places where we see this kit being deployed, there is no alternative. There is no XRF, which costs, you know, $40,000 for someone to deploy. And so we think that screening with something that is categorical rather than, you know, continuous scale, you know, one, two, three, is very useful. But we haven't managed to convince everyone in our field. If I had to pick, however, you know, one sort of environmental concern that's really come to the forefront in the past four decades, that's not water or soil pollution, it's air pollution. And, and that actually, I have some colleagues at Le Mans, including Dan Westerfeld, for instance, who has been deploying these relatively inexpensive air monitors in a number of African countries, uh, towns, has been calibrating them against more expensive instruments and found them to be quite good. Uh, one can buy these, you know, $250, $300 air pollution monitors. It would be nice if people spent more efforts into calibrating them. When they come out of the box, they could be off by 20%. It could be off by 50% or 10%, depends. Uh, and that's a bit of a challenge because that means you don't really know the absolute levels. But you will see peaks when it goes up and down, you know, what weather conditions, whether the wind is blowing from one part of town or the other. So, so that is something people, I would encourage people to look up. And uh, one of these manufacturers called Purple Air actually encourages also people to put then their data on a website uh, so that you can see if you zoom in on New York City, I had to do that recently because I bought a couple of them and you could choose, you don't have to make the data public. 
that's uncalibrated data. But still, if there are large fluctuations with the weather conditions, you can see it that all the centers, all the sensors actually really respond in parallel. It's quite amazing. So the combination of relatively inexpensive instrumentation, uh, using mobile phones to connect these instruments or Wi-Fi networks to connect these to a centralized place and mapping that, that I think is very valuable. I think we have been trying to convince the Bangladesh government to give us access to a new database that they're putting together with 10 million tests for arsenic of the wells. And we'd like to present that to the whole population in the form of a Google Maps-like system, you know, where you could say, ah, this is safe well. Maybe if I drill to 150 feet instead of 100 feet, I will get to safe water. There's a lot of rich information there that could be used. So again, using smartphone technology, you can do a lot. In the situation, which is often the case, where these contaminants are not spread uniformly, it's very heterogeneous. That makes it difficult to predict, but often it's also a way to the solution. Well, it's really saving lives and through your colleagues. And I was so fascinated to hear about how we can be empowered to monitor our own air safety. And I have to say, I've been depending a little bit on these COVID masks for pollution. It's important to keep safe. We are now in Paris. You are in New York. The air statistics are heartbreaking. I know it's unevenly spread around the world. Eight million deaths a year. I can't even envisage it. How that breaks down. I was actually just at the lecture this morning on that very topic. I think the global estimate is 4 million. I think a lot of public health scientists think that uh, a lot more should be done to reduce air pollution and could be done. And things are changing, right? I understand that more and more European cities won't allow diesel cars in the center of towns anymore, but it's slow, but it is happening. And if you look at air pollution, I've seen these pictures of Manhattan in the 1950s where it was much more polluted than it was than it is today. So I think the trend for many of these contaminants in relatively rich countries has been good in some countries, especially, of course, a developing country that maybe prioritizes economic growth over health, at least temporarily, maybe the air quality has worsened. It may be a while before it improves again. I think what's really important to make all this go in the right direction is transparency. It's data. You can look at government data. You shouldn't count on the government to give you all the data you need to make these choices. I think it more and more individual citizens made measurements, correlate these measurements across areas, interpret them together. I think that will also create political pressure. If someone wants to be elected, if you're lucky enough to be in a country where there are elections, if that person wants to be elected, maybe a good way to do that is to respond to this sort of information. And therefore, the quality of the environment will improve as well. And I'd like to ask a broad question as we have the explosion of the population. What are your thoughts on the future of cities and what direction would be going to? Citizens are confused. There's one trend that's unavoidable, which is that the world population is urbanizing, right? And there are good reasons for that, right? Jobs, education, uh, culture. So this is, I think, progress. It's going to happen. There are many advantages to living in cities. If you have so many people living closely together, then it may be a good idea not to have all, uh, you know, smokestacks in the same location, which used to be the case in New York in 50 or 70 or 80 years ago. So it does come with other changes, transportation. It really looks like a case where the combustion engines really should be eliminated. Obviously, there's a trend in that direction as well. I know one person, for instance, in Milan, who recently bought a hybrid car, or even electric car, primarily because this person couldn't drive the same car diesel car in the center of the city. So regulation has can have the desired effect. Yeah, it may not always happen as fast as you'd like, but I do see improvements. 
And it's also true that not everyone in the city is affected equally in some areas. I think it's often true in the U.S. at least that incinerators, for instance, are located in poorer parts of town. That doesn't seem right. But again, if people could monitor the information, then it's more likely that some policy change will be made. Maybe over time also policymakers, maybe businesses will realize that what they're expected to do isn't quite as costly as they think, especially if they do take into account all the years that people live less healthy than they could be and less productive. So yes, I remain optimistic. If I may ask your feeling for the environment and your concern about this planet, it's instilled in us in a young age. I think there's a natural tendency in the younger generations not to accept the world as it is. And I think that it should be encouraged. I think most people in government do have good intentions. So I think having a dialogue about issues that you care about, I think that's important. I think some businesses you have in the past, the smelters are sort of notorious because the owners would want to smelt as cheaply as possible and not have treatment systems on the stack. So that's completely reprehensible. But I think most businesses, if presented with facts that are pretty objective, I think most businesses would realize that if there is some cost to changing their way, I think they would. But if there has to be an argument, maybe it's also quite natural that there's a bit of pushback in both directions and then you find something that goes with that matches how fast society at large is willing to change. So yeah, both accepting things the way they are. I'll give you one example. This happened maybe 30 years ago or 25 years ago. I was getting a haircut in Aix-en-Provence and there was a news report on the radio saying that such and such nuclear power plant along the Wound River had emitted some radioactivity. I don't think it was a huge amount. So this was reported. And what surprised me is that the barber at the time said, but I don't understand why this sort of information is made public. It's going to create panic. I was really struck by that. I disagree with that. I think information, bad news too, should be made public. As soon as you start suppressing this sort of information, then the suspicion grows, the tension increases, the polarization increases. So that I think is something that has changed. I hope it will continue that people realize, at least in the context of the environment, hiding things, pushing back too hard may only make it worse later. And so it may make more sense to go a bit more with the flow, maybe even help some environmental groups obtain the measurements that they think they should get. More information you have, you can also then push the things you want. And I know that also your wife is an economist mm -hmm. and you're talking about ways of business that really need to be changed for the future. So. What are your views? I certainly feel that could have a lot more raw materials could be recycled. Since I study mining, I wonder, do we really need all this new copper? Could more copper be recycled? I think over time, society will be willing to pay more for recycling. I remember when Mayor Bloomberg just started in New York, one of his first moves was to stop recycling or separating trash in various glass, metal. And there was an outcry, but he said, well, from a business point of view, it doesn't make sense. I was surprised. I think he's become more concerned about climate change and things like that. But what struck me is that the lesson from that is that the cost of just dumping something and not reusing it was not high enough.
you need a whole spectrum of specialties and approaches, but it may not be so easy to jump from one to the other. Quality is improving and it's going to improve further. Water, there's a hydrologic cycle. Most water that is used evaporates, comes back. <laughs> well, I said the earth is going to run out of food and it still hasn't happened. I don't think it's going to. I guess I'm a bit more of a gradualist. You know, I see gradual improvements. I don't believe in revolutions. They scare me a bit. I worry a bit about one solution fits all things like that. So there has to be some compromise between a trend that improves, but still these freedom for adjustments and imperfections and things like that. So as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation of education and getting the information out, what were some important life lessons for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'll pick a specific example, a project that we have running in Peru, where some children grew up in mining towns, former mining towns, current mining towns. And uh, one of my colleagues there, Johnny Ponzi, has managed to essentially augment their science curriculum using our kids to screen uh, soil for lead. So by using a kit like that, the children have learned about measurement, reproducibility, they can map these results. And once they interpret their patterns, they can improve their and that of their younger siblings. I'm picking that one example because it does involve the younger generation. So these are high school students and I've worked with high school students before. I think students are very open to new ways of looking at the world. And I think that's what various field kits can provide. And I just hope more and more of them are in a position where they can try it for themselves. Because I think it's a unique experience. I think it changes the way you perceive, where you live, what you're dealing with and how you can improve things. So this is what but I hope to see more of in the future. And as you reflect on the beauty and wonder of the natural world and how it's changed, I know you're very optimistic because you've seen improvements in the quality of health. What are some of those memories that you hold and you want to preserve for future generations? I'm not a zero growth believer. I think China, for instance, has grown tremendously and has a lot of people have come out of poverty and had better education and health because China has developed so rapidly. There have been environmental costs and in some cases unnecessary or too high an environmental cost. What I'm hoping for the many more countries where further economic growth is needed so that children have similar chances in the future, what I'm hoping is that with greater transparency of information, avoiding development that isn't checked in any way. What I'm hoping is that the children of these countries that still have a long ways to go, what I'm hoping is that they are not exposed to these toxicants and that they can live their lives to the full extent. Well, thank you, Professor Lex Van Geen, for sharing your insights and for helping us protect ourselves from environmental contaminants and protect the planet for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. The One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lynn Flores. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. The music was written and composed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.